Um, listen, if you have a Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes 3. We're going to tackle the last part of that chapter. Again, if you're new, we've been in this series on Ecclesiastes. It's a different kind of a series because it's a different kind of a book. Um, if you've ever just read through the book of Ecclesiastes, you've noticed how awkward it is. You've probably bailed before you got this far. Um, if you ever did try to read it, you probably got halfway through chapter 3 and thought, nah, that's pretty good. I'm going to go ahead and move on. I think I get the drift. So we might be picking up where many of you have stopped historically. And it's going to be in the last part of that chapter. If you were here last week, chapter 3, the first part, the preacher, which is the primary voice that we find in the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, the word Ecclesiastes means preacher or one who assembles and speaks to. He talked about how time is harsh. And we all kind of agreed, time is harsh. Your good seasons don't last for very long. They, they evaporate. Your difficult seasons, they kind of sit still and you can't get rid of them quick enough. Can't really bend time to do what we want with it. It's merciless in that way. And although God has a master plan, we saw last week, and he has a design behind all events and moments and times and seasons, we can't really see what he's doing. We, we don't have context as to why we're going through what we're going through. We can't edit his design. We can't even bend his will. But we also saw last week how the gospel, the good story of what God has done for you and me through the person of Christ who came to live, die, and live again, waiting to bring us to him where he has created a place for us all to be with him in harmony for eternity future. This good gospel proves to you and me that God is very brilliant in how he orders the times and the events and the moments of human history. We can, we can trust him. Because in that moment, especially when the sky goes dark and there's blood on the cross and they're shoving a king into a tomb, it looked like that moment and that time and that brief little interlude was going against everything that God had maybe planned. It looked like it was going against design. It looked like he was out of step and out of time with what the master plan was aimed at. But we see that that, in its worst, was for your ultimate good and for God's ultimate glory. And because we see that the gospel was arranged for our ultimate good and his ultimate glory, we could trust any events that we mow through today. Any of the small things that hit us today, or even the big things, even if some of you have been in long seasons, we know that God is good to us. We also saw last week how we are free to be conformed to the image of Christ in all seasons, in every season. If you're having a good season, you're free to laugh and celebrate what God is doing. I mean, to the max. Because whenever you experience something good, whether it's a good moment with your friends or a great memory that's being built, it is just an echo. It's just proof that we have a good gift giver. In fact, every good gift that you have is really just a ripple. It's a shade. It's, it's, a, it's a deep echo of the best gift ever given from the best gift giver. So you're free to celebrate. But then time turns sometimes, as we saw. And you need to know that you're free to cry and free to mourn and express all of your deepest emotions. You're free to do that as well and still enjoy the truth that God will one day come back and reverse everything that makes us sad, everything that makes us mourn, everything that makes us panic, everything that makes us feel shame, everything. He will wipe away every tear from our eye, and we will never cry another tear again, right? And even on our boring days, our normal seasons, which if we all 
if we're honest, we'd say make up the majority of our lives, right? Just the predictable part of our lives. We can celebrate that God is executing a plan of deep detail without any waste. He doesn't do anything in vain. Even on our forgettable days, the, the day that you had three and a half weeks ago that you, you couldn't reproduce what you did that day. Even on that day, God was knitting a tapestry for his ultimate glory and for your ultimate good. See, what we learned last week is no matter how time turns, whether it's good or bad or boring, we can trust that God is thoughtful, he's wise, he's good, he's kind. And he puts all events and all seasons and all moments together for, again, let me say it again, for your greatest good and for his greatest glory. But as we'll see today, not only can time feel seemingly harsh, when it comes to justice and peace and oppression and righteousness and wickedness, life itself can feel really harsh. I mean, fact the entire town of Kenosha, Wisconsin, can fit inside Neyland Stadium, no problem, right? With room to spare. It's a small dot on the map. But it might as well be the biggest dot on the map right now, right? Might as well be as big as New York right now. All for one big reason. Jacob Blake had an interaction with officers that ended with seven gunshots, partial paralysis, national riots, protests layered on top of old protests that we're still having, on top of older ones even than that. You see, even a small dot on the map can erupt into something violently overnight because of one reason, people sensed an injustice. It's under heavy investigation, but people sense an injustice. It doesn't matter. And things got very violent very quick in a town that's smaller than Knoxville, Tennessee. You know, in one of the videos of the protest, I saw a young man holding a sign that he'd made, and it said, no justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. Probably one of the most prominent protest slogans in American history, at least recent history, right? You might not know this. That comes from an old writing from Martin Luther King. He says this, I might say that I see these two struggles as one struggle. There can be no justice without peace, and there can be no peace without justice. And it's actually going to be here at this moment that Martin Luther King agrees with the preacher of Ecclesiastes. When we don't find justice where it belongs, when we don't find justice where we go looking for it, you're going to find conflict instead, but you're not going to find peace. Not going to be any peace there. We all already kind of know this. We know this because we've grown up in a world where even at young ages, we've been, we've been provoked to say either from our heart or from our mouth, that's not fair. How many times does that come out of your mouth? That's not, that's not fair. That's not fair. I remember being a little kid playing Little League or in whatever sport where there was a coach, probably a volunteer coach, who always put his kids in, even though his kids were horrible, always put his kids in and not everybody else. And I remember just riding the bench there thinking, that's not fair. That's not fair. Something in me as a kid knew that wasn't fair. I remember the 2008 housing crisis where people lost their homes and the banks got a slap on the wrist. And I remember as an adult saying, that doesn't seem to be very fair. You, every time you watch the news and you hear a story or you see a story about somebody getting a slap on the wrist or no penalty from a crime because they could hire better attorneys than you'll ever be able to hire, isn't there a piece of you that says, that's just not fair? There's nothing fair about that. Probably this week something happened to you where you thought to yourself or said to yourself, gosh, that's not fair. It's not. 
You see, ultimately, we want the bad guys to lose and get theirs, and we want the good guys to win. We want the bad guys to lose, good guys to win. This is why The Empire Strikes Back is such a disappointing film. <laughs> if you're a Star Wars fanatic, I'm sorry, you know, it's just a horrible film. Out of all 12 of them, it's the worst one. I'm still upset about it. Even though I was a little kid, I remember watching that on the big screen, and when the credits rolled, I thought, wait, 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 Han is still frozen in carbonite, Luke doesn't have a hand, there's got to be like a loose five or ten minutes hanging around that's going to tie it all together. Nope, it's just a bad film. It's just a bad ending. That's the way it is. The bad guys actually won. The good guys did not. <laughs> Hate that film. Here's the thing. You might not know this. This is fascinating to me. There have been over half of a million professional movies made in cinematic history. 500,000 minimum of 500,000 movies. Professional ones. Not the dumb ones you make with your friends on your phone. But professional ones, right, that have been made. America is only third, right? Nigeria and India make more than we do per year, but America makes 600 movies per year, professional ones. I want you to think about that for a minute because you could probably name like nine this year, right? Which shows you how many really bad films are being made going straight to video that someone spent a million bucks to make that you'll never watch, right? Out of all of these tens and hundreds of thousands of movies, how many can you name where the bad guys win and the good guys lose? Like three, four, I mean, I gave you one, right? Not very many. Why? Because we don't want to watch them. <laughs> They're not going to spend the money to make something. We're not going to spend the money to watch. We hate films like that. It's too much like our every, it's, it's, it's every day. We live in a world where, they get, where, where the good guys don't win and the bad guys do. Why would we want to pay money to see that? Something in all of us craves justice. We crave justice because we crave peace. We were built for this. We came out of the womb hardwired to crave a justice, or at least a kind of justice, justice as we see it, right? And we're all like this. Even wicked people, even oppressive, unrighteous, wicked people have a moment where they'll say in their own hearts, that's not fair. You can stuff Chipotle with 15 drug lords all standing on their little disc, you know, that's six foot behind the disc in front of them, and they're all waiting their turn to get their bowl. All it takes is somebody to come in and cut in front of all of the drug lords, and what are they going to say? Hey, 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 what are you cutting for? The line's back here. That's not fair. It's in all of us to do this. I'm not really even curious as to why we're like this. I think we all know we have a contorted, self-centered view of what is just and what is not. My biggest curiosity is to what can you and I expect? What can we expect regarding ultimate justice in this life under the sun, as the preacher calls it? This life under the sun. What is God's last word on injustice that you and I see and interact with on a daily basis? He's going to help us. Let's look at Ecclesiastes 3. This is going to be in verse 16. This is the word of the Lord for us. And we're going to see Christ very clearly through this passage today because Christ is the chief character in this book. The preacher says to us, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. 
For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Keep going to verse 1 of chapter 4. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Okay. A couple big points, really a few big points we're going to pull out of this. One is that he says, and I agree, there is no justice or peace where you'd expect to see it, where you'd hope to see it, not going to find it. He also makes the point of saying the powerful and the oppressive destroy the powerless. That's a truth. The third thing he says is we're exposed. He uses the word tested. It's also exposed. We're exposed as being no better than basic animals. And then in that same conclusion, man and beast, we come from the dust, we live, we die just like they do and go right back to dust. He kind of remarks something that we've seen in previous passages that all we have is really our unmemorable and our unremarkable work to find any joy in. And then he ends with, it would be better not even to be born. (laughs) Don't you love it how this guy just comes off the tracks? He just emotionally comes off the tracks. Every statement gets worse than the one he just said. He reminds me of that friend. I had a friend that did this, right? He'd get a speeding ticket, and then eventually he's questioning the point to existence, right? He just gets, it turns into Edgar Allan Poe. Everything he says just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And that's where this guy is. Every conclusion is worse than the one that came before it which is why no one likes this book. That's why nobody, nobody says Ecclesiastes is their favorite book. It's hard to read this over and over again. But it begs you and me to square our shoulders with a really big question, right? How are you supposed to feel about oppression and injustice in this life under the sun? How are you supposed to feel about it? Is it supposed to make you mad? Why? Why does it make you mad? What does injustice say about God? What does it say about you? Today I'd like to lay down just a couple ground rules because this topic can get politically charged really fast, okay? One ground rule is that injustice, and this is not just ground rules for me and you today, but maybe some that you can carry from this. Injustice and wickedness and oppression, it does exist where it's not supposed to be. That's a true statement. I mean charities. There's there's corruption and rot inside of charities that do some real beautiful work, right? Police departments are under fire right now because there is wickedness, oppression found where you would hope that you wouldn't find any. Churches have it. Courthouses have it. Universities have it. Any place that flies this banner of, hey, you're going to find nothing but righteousness and justice and peace and equity and nobility here, we're going to find something else a lot of times. And listen, we don't gasp in protest when a college hacker hacks another college hacker, right? We don't care about that. We do care when a government does it to another government, though, right? 
because we think that government shouldn't do that. You know, people that show up to work with suits on and are polished and went to a school, they shouldn't do that. When a drug dealer punches another drug dealer and steals their wallet and runs off, we don't really gasp in disbelief. It's when a wickedness is found in church, in the church staff. It's when it's found in the courtroom. That's when we revolt the most. Second ground rule, injustice, wickedness, and oppression can be found in any political party on earth. It doesn't matter if you're red, blue, or purple. It really, it really does not. Your political party, whatever it is, it's not perfect. It's not. It's full of wickedness. You want to know why? Because people. Because people. It's made up of people. It doesn't matter if you're independent either. I, I keep hearing this. I don't know why people say this. Well, not me because I'm independent. I've disassociated myself from red or blue. It's still people, friend. That doesn't, there's, it's not like there's more of a godly moral compass. It's not a category that's more Christ-like just because it's not red or blue. It's still got humans in it. Another ground rule. I don't think we're an election cycle away from ultimate justice and peace being found here. Right? Presidents, they come. They talk about how they inherited a broken system. They do the best they can with what they have, and then they leave a broken system for the next president to come and say the exact same thing over and over again. And this isn't ever since the history of our country. This goes all the way back to the garden. It goes back to the very, very beginning. Leaders, political leaders, even great ones, are not our Jesus. Leaders are not Jesus. The next iteration of this country is not paradise on earth. It's not going to look like eternity future. We have a heroic savior already. We didn't vote for him though. In fact, he found us voting for ourselves. Another ground rule. We all hunger for our own view of justice. Can we agree as a ground rule that our view of justice is not pure? It's got a filter over it. The filter says, how does this personally affect me? Me. You see, we judge other people by their actions but we judge ourselves by our intentions, typically. We demand justice when other people break rules or laws, but we want mercy when we do it. In fact, we've got a really good reason for breaking the same rules that we complain about watching other people break all the time. But friends, we can't even keep our own rules, can we? We, we make our own rules and can't even keep them. I mean, we, we break our own diet. We crater on our New Year's resolution before March is even close. We do this on our own. We break promises that we make to other people. We speed on the interstate. We roll every other stop sign. <laughs> we don't feed the parking meter because we're pretty sure we're going to get away with it. We don't wear masks where we're supposed to. We bend the rules. But we've got a great reason for it, right? Because we know our intentions. We've got great reasons for all of this. So justice is more of a fluid concept for most of us, if we're being honest. And when we see other people do something that is unjust, we demand justice, we demand something harsh, we judge it critically, but when we do it ourselves, we want mercy. Mercy. I said this last week, I do not have a political axe to grind. I will leave it to Facebook to shame you with its infinite wisdom on who you should vote for this year, right? But I am convinced healthy churches address what is political in nature. I mean, we have some lightning rods, right? Some very heavy topics that affect people. And because they're heavy lightning rods, they come with heavy emotions for all of us. And because of that, we end up clumping each other in little groups with little bumper stickers to match the group, right? And it can get toxic really fast. 
And I don't think the church has to retreat from that. I don't think Christians do either. Christ himself spoke to charged topics. You're free to do the same thing. Very free. Why? Because people. People are attached to these issues, these topics. It's true. We have injustice and oppression and wickedness in places it should not be today. That's a fact. I agree with the preacher in this. That is true today. You might agree or disagree with whether it's systemic. That's fine. You might agree or disagree on what would cure this injustice under the sun today. That's fine too because we're allowed to disagree on these hard topics. One thing we are not allowed to do is not care. Not caring runs against the grain of the heart of Christ. Not caring about people is an anti-gospel lean. Now we don't see Jesus running for office. But we do see him protesting matters that mattered. We see him speaking, voicing for the voiceless. If we just zoom out for a moment and look at this, we can all agree with the preacher that if people are involved and power is in the equation, and listen, it doesn't even matter how the power shows up. It doesn't have to be governmental power. You could have a large Twitter footprint and have a lot of power. You could be really good at basketball and your voice has a lot of power. You could be a great celebrity and have a lot of blockbuster films and all of a sudden your influence has a lot of power. You can wear a badge and you can have a lot of power. There's a lot of things that give us power, but anytime you find people in power, you will usually find injustice and wickedness. Whether your blue lives matter or black lives matter or baby lives matter, People, and this is what we could all agree with, no matter what your hashtag might be, people, in our view, are not being treated justly. Now, people might be who you associate yourself with or feel closely bound to, but people, in some way or another, are not being justly treated. And justice is what we're seeking, right? Listen, I only get about 35, 36 minutes up here every week. I don't get very long, so I can never get down in the weeds on this stuff like I'd like to. Right Now, there is a blog on our website. You scroll all the way down to the front page, and it's just sitting there. It's really more of a link list than it is a blog, but it will point you in some good directions, some sites and some voices that we have vetted that are safe, that will speak to how we build disciples in election years. How do we, as a Christian church, see justice whenever we watch the news? How are we supposed to interact with Um, race relations right now? How are we supposed to, as a church, see um, uh, how how vocal we're supposed to be and where we're supposed to be vocal and how we're supposed to handle our neighbors? You can really get in the weeds on that. You can find that there. But listen, I think election years are great years to see where we personally need growth. Election years are fantastic for that. Friends, listen, if you get on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, you start breaking blood vessels and your eye starts to twitch because of things that you are seeing, can we agree that you might, it might be a discipleship issue for you? You might need to grow. You wouldn't have seen this had it not been an election year. If, if every third news cycle has you, your, your stomach in knots and you're fearful or you're vengeful because of what you see, you might need to grow. If you have an inability to sit across from somebody that flies a different bumper sticker than you and treat them like someone who was created in God's image, you definitely have some room to grow, right? If we feel like our nation's future rests in the hands of a political party, instead of God's hands, we have some growing to do. You see, what bugs and frustrates the preacher in Ecclesiastes 3 bugs and frustrates you and me as well because ultimately, We want the bad guy to get his problem. We are the bad guy. 
We are the bad guy. We, we want the good guy to win, ultimately. The problem is, is there's only one good guy, and it's not me, and it's not you. So we're in a serious dilemma. We can't just whine about injustice. We have to see that we ourselves are not very just, that we fail at holding power. We're not very good at being righteous. We're not just victims. We're also villains. I have been unjustly handled in my life, just like you. I've also probably not been very just with everyone I've come into contact with, all honesty. I've been oppressed. I get it. I'm a middle-aged white man, so what kind of oppression could I have felt? Well, I'm also a pastor. I've been oppressed, but I've also been oppressive. You see, we look at human history as this story of the villainous and the virtuous, which isn't too untrue, but we always see ourselves as the virtuous and not the villainous. Right? We always put ourselves in there as someone that's got a noble mentality to everything that we do. That's just not true, though. That's not true. We're all villains. There's only one virtuous hero. We all have black hats on, as I've said before. There's only one white hat. You see, the beauty of the gospel story and why it's such a sweet an intoxicating story for you and me is just came to the unjust. That Jesus, the just and the righteous, came into our circus and showed us favor, even though we are the villainous. And he did so at his own cost for our great benefit. And in that, he is glorified. But I think most of us can agree on that. In fact, I think most of us can agree on everything we've heard this preacher say so far, but we're still frustrated. Because in this life under the sun that we live here, crooked things can't be made straight. And it's hard for us. And it bugs us. Here under the sun, the good guy does not always win. The bad guy does not always lose. And the people of God don't always care, really. So he comes to this conclusion. And he says this. We are no better than the kingdom of basic beasts. Beasts, he says. The psalmist says it a little different. He says in Psalm 49, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beast that perishes. And then we see in Genesis the beginning, the life, and the end of what happens to those who live like beasts. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. He's, we're, we're beasts. And beasts act beastly. They... They're beastly to everyone around them, even their own kind. Beasts even eat their young, right? They don't respect or value their fellow beasts. They have a heavy filter of how does this help me? How do I get ahead? That's a basic beast. I know some of you are animal rights people, and some of you love your animals, and you're thinking, what about dolphins? Dolphins do great things for other people, or my labradoodle, or I love kittens. I've got kittens. Listen, let's not be weird about this, right? Because what he is saying right now is you're not going to find an animal with a God-given moral compass, right? I know Disney likes to make movies where all the animals talk, and it looks like they have a moral compass. That's not how it is. We've all had great animals. I'm sure your animal is smart, and I'm sure they're well-behaved. You turn your head for one minute, though, they'll eat their own throw up, right? You know it, and I know it. Beasts are beastly. <laughs> Some of you, you have kittens and you watch Empire Strikes Back and you hate me right now, right? You hate me. Cover yourself with kittens while you watch it. That's okay. I don't like your cat or your favorite movie, so we're even. The preacher here is saying something very valuable. When we mishandle power, when we mishandle justice, trying to be our own God, we end up looking more like 
animals than we even do people, right? I mean, you've seen the videos, seeing a brick thrown at an officer's head. I mean, last night there was an ambush. Two St. Louis cops were ambushed, and one of them got shot in the head. We see things like this, right? And then we see officers mishandle, mishandle their authority. We see both. When we see people march for justice with signs that they made out of poster board that say no justice, no peace, but then they'll put that down and then they will raid a family business and they will loot it for everything that it's worth. And when we see this back and forth, we're watching God's image bearers act like cattle, act like beasts devouring each other. And I'd like to see the church is immune to this. I'd like to punctuate that with, but not Christians. We're totally different. But that's not true, is it? Not true at all. Just go to Facebook. Man, just go to Facebook, my favorite place to see Christians behave well. Give special attention to the posts that begin with, quote, I don't typically comment on political things, dot, 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 right? Pay attention to those. Or scroll down to the comments where we see all of the solid goal of wisdom and caretaking for people of God. The church can be beastly. We need God's spirit to mold us and to conform us to the image of Jesus just as much. So our preacher comes to the most gruesome of conclusions. He says, if we act like animals, we're just going to return to dust like animals, and it would be best if we were not even born. He needs a hug here. He is in a bad place. He's run out of things to be encouraged about. He's given up on justice, prevailing. He's abandoned hope that righteousness could ever be found in this world. That's why a couple chapters ago he says in Ecclesiastes 1, what is crooked cannot be made straight. It's not happening. And here's the thing. If we're waiting for a punchline and this little preaching right here, he doesn't give us one. There's, he doesn't balance it. But as I've said, you're not going to find any answers in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes isn't a book with any answers in it. It's loaded with questions. For you and for me. It's a place where we bring our frustrations, but he's just going to match them with his own, right? But then again, this is the point. This is where he wants us. This is exactly where he wants us. The ultimate justice and the ultimate peace that we crave is never going to be satisfied here. It will only be satisfied in Christ. It will be God the just in the person of Christ who will come to the unjust and broker a peace treaty that will bring justice to God for our benefit. It will be God the righteous and Jesus that will come to the unrighteous. And as, as Peter talks about in 1 Peter, will give us his righteousness, even though we didn't earn it, deserve it, or want it, and he will take our unrighteousness and plant it on his own shoulders as he hangs on the cross. He does this for us. It will be God in the flesh, in Christ, who will come and not just bring peace, but be a peace to you and to me at his own cost. This phrase, no justice, no peace, that's a gospel sentiment long before Martin Luther King got his fingerprints on it. It's a gospel sentiment. Because without God's justice being satisfied, mankind will never have peace. Not with each other and not with him. Conflict will always remain. See, God has a demand of justice because he's perfect God. And this is a perfect demand. And it must be met. Because God's not going to look the other way or let it slide. You see, the gospel's not a story of overlooking sin and blowing off the penalty. The gospel's a good story because he owns our sin and owns our penalty. God himself 
demands high justice, and then he meets it. He names the price, and then he pays it. That's why it's such a good story. Otherwise, it's no good story at all. Paul says this in Ephesians 2. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He is our peace. Jesus comes, the just for the unjust, and he advocates for you and me by his own blood because there's limitless crime committed by mankind, and it requires a sacrifice, and God meets it by giving us a limitless Jesus on the cross. You see, this sermon's not a I'm not trying to teach you how to go back to your cars and hit Monday going, trying to be more just, trying to not yell at the person across the cubicle that has a different bumper sticker than you. That's not the, that's not the goal here. The goal is to point your gaze to one who is just, one who demands justice, to, to avert your gaze to one who is peace to us. But what about today? I mean, how do we walk in the light of such a good gospel, right? Because the best part about the gospel is you could walk out of here and be a total turd. You could be unjust, you could be oppressive, you could be wicked, you could be unrighteous. And if God has in fact, if he has in fact saved you, rescued you, and you are buried in him, you can't shake loose his level of love for you. But we're also free to grow in this. So how do we do that? How do we walk forward in an unjust world? The obvious answer is the obvious answer. We fight for those who need to be fought for. We fight for justice where it's absent. Fight for the oppressed and the discounted. That's the shape of Christ. Read the Gospels. That's the very shape of Christ. We fight for the unborn. They don't have a voice. We fight for those who are marginalized, crippled, the refugees, the forgotten, the abused, the neglected, the abandoned, the socially quarantined. As a church, we've done some small things here or there. We pay for feminine products for teenage girls who can't afford it here, right? We just put together four backpacks for refugees, political refugees that are going to school here in our school district. By the way, thank you for that. Thank you for that. They loved it. We had some of you run a 5K or a 10K this weekend for the Hope Resource Center because of their work for the unborn. These are small things. We do these things corporately. We do them individually. Your missional communities do them as well. Friends, listen, we don't fight for the oppressed to bring them peace here as much as to show them peace elsewhere. you got to hear me in this. Yes, the oppressed need advocacy, but to what end? To what end? Because ultimately, as the preacher says, they're going to return to dust, and then I'll add, we find judgment. Right? So even in our display of justice and advocacy, the prayer and the hope is that they see Christ our protesting has to land at the gospel, or why? Our service and our advocacy have, has to land at telling the story of a good God, or why? 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 Why would we just be making it more bearable, living in this life under the sun, just for the sake of making it bearable to live in this life under the sun? And I know this isn't always possible. And I know we do the best we can, but not caring is not an option. Not bothering ourselves, inconveniencing ourselves, that's not an option. It's not an option. In fact, even as I'm talking about this, some of you, you have some moments where your heart says that's not fair louder than other moments where your neighbor might say it. It's sharper for you in justice. It's sharper for you in some areas than not others, right? Some of you, it's the sex trade. Some of you, it's babies. 
Some of you, it's race relations. It could, who knows what it is for you that makes it a little bit different, but there's something that you see and you say, that's not fair. I'd hope to see justice here, and I'm not seeing any. And it's likely God shaping your heart to have a burden that will step in to own and be inconvenienced and lessened by the needs of others so that you could be a voice for the voiceless and you can be created in the shape of Jesus in that moment to help, to help. And then even on top of that, what do we do when we ourselves are unjustly suffering, when oppression comes our way? You're also free, because of the same gospel, you're free to receive unjust oppression. You're free to receive it. This is what it says in 1 Peter 2. If you have your Bible, you could turn there quickly. If not, don't worry about it because we'll splash it up on the screen. 1 Peter 2, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also has suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. This is important for us, because we will all have unfair things happen to us, will we not? I mean, until the day that Jesus collects us, we're all going to be treated unfairly. You're going to be treated like a beast by people being beastly. And yet, because of the gospel, you will always have peace. You can know you're free to receive that oppression and have an abounding internal peace because of how good God is to you. The lingering question is off. Why doesn't God just find us in our moment of oppression and jump in and edit it and fix it? It's because he's working things for your good for his glory and for your good. He's trying to bend you, twist you, conform you in the image of Christ. I think right now a lot of us are fighting through an unjust or oppressive moment or season. You need to know that God is making you more into the image of Christ in that. And it's for your ultimate good that that's happening. And it's for his ultimate glory. That place where your heart says, no, this is not fair. That's a moment that you share with Christ who walked the life of being unjustly treated, of being oppressed, of wicked people being unrighteous with him. That's a moment that we share. You, listen, forget about praying, I want to know you more, Jesus, if you're not willing to walk and share these moments with Christ. Just go ahead and jettison that because there's no way you're ever going to walk with a deep intimacy with Christ unless you share these hard moments where you will be unjustly treated. It's the shared moments that build this deep intimacy. So there's a lot of room for us to repent in a sermon like this. I mean, even as I was penning it, I was thinking, gosh, I'm writing this, I'm typing this, I've got a lot of repenting to do in this. I've got some prayer myself. Repent from losing our mind whenever we're unjustly handled. We do that. But God is conforming us to the image of the one who is truly unjustly murdered on a cross. Repent from moving away from injustice, trying to keep the peace, when all we're really doing is abdicating people in need, right? Repent from destroying others like wild beasts because they don't fit in our political category. 
It's a lot of place to repent. And listen, some of you might be skeptics right now. Not just skeptics of everything that I'm saying, but maybe even skeptics of Christianity, of Christ. I'm going to just echo something Paul said. We've already read. Jesus creates peace by breaking down a wall of hostility. A wall of hostility. You need to know this, friend. Justice is going to be met. The only way for justice to be met is for a penalty to be paid. Right? So either the penalty for your sins will be owned by you or it will be owned by Christ. But it will be owned. Justice will be met. It's not looking the other way. It's not how it works. You see, something has to, you're either trusting in the righteousness of what Jesus has done or you're trusting in your own righteousness. You're either trusting in the fact that he owned your sin and took your penalty or you will have to trust in yourself and your own ability to manage that, your sin and the penalty. But justice will be met. Let me just beg you to submit to the Lord and trust in the fact that he has done a good job with our sin, that he has owned it and he has therefore owned the penalty, which is why there is blood on the cross. And then we have a moment of celebration in this as well. And as the team comes up and as Chaz comes up, they're going to lead you a little bit in this as well. You know, there's this cool moment when the angels show up to sing when Jesus was born and they say, glory to God in the highest and in our, on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace. Peace is going to come because peace is a man. Peace is Christ. And he's rescuing all of us to a place he's been preparing. Friend, the day is coming where peace will have no limits. You'll never turn to dust in this place. We won't consume each other. Justice will always reign. Oppression will be a memory. You'll be looking to the person next to you and thinking, hey, do you remember that thing called oppression? I could like barely remember it. I could barely remember what shame felt like. I could barely remember what it felt like to have someone treat me unjustly. It's barely there. But until that day, we have the gospel as our true north and we can trust it to lead us and celebrate in all seasons, even ones where we're unjustly handled. So let me pray for you while the team comes up and they lead you in communion and they lead you in song for a moment. So Father, we thank you for being good and kind and sweet and thoughtful and generous with us. Lord, even though a lot of us in here are suffering right now something that might be unjust or a wickedness, either from a boss or something like that, but Lord, even in those moments, you are forming us in your own image. And Lord, you're brilliant in how you do that. We can't always understand what that looks like and why you do it the way you do it. But the gospel shows us we can trust you in how you do it. So Father, we pray that when it comes to this thing called injustice and oppression in this world, that we see it through the lens of the gospel. What we really hunger for here was made true by you on a cross. And we can celebrate that at all times. And Father, we can even lean into our fellow man, our neighbor. We can lean into this city and be a voice for those with no voice. And we can't just get mad whenever we don't see justice where we expect it, but you can mobilize us to be bringers of justice and bringers of peace, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because it's in the image of what you have done. And that when we protest as a people, when we are loud as a people, when we invest our dollars and our time as a people, it's not just because it's the right thing to do, 
It's not just to make stuff more bearable here, Lord, but it's to draw people's attention to who you are. That they would trust in you and your peace and your justice and your righteousness. So, Lord, we love you. And in this time, we just devote this last part of worship to you. Ask your Holy Spirit to come and change our hearts. We ask your Holy Spirit to come and convict us and to comfort us. We love you. We're so thankful. You're so very good to us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.